All right, I told you to turn to your Bible to Luke chapter 23. We are in part four of a fun series, a series kind of coming from a different angle. We've been talking about things Jesus never said. If you're new to City Church or new to this series, you may be asking, why would we talk about things Jesus never said? There's so much in Scripture that Jesus did say. Why would we talk about what he hasn't said? Well, the reality is oftentimes for many of us who've been in the faith for any length of time, who've been following Jesus for for decades, if we're not careful, the stuff that we know becomes a little too familiar and it starts to lose its edge. It starts to lose its impact. And so sometimes looking at a different angle actually brings something we used to know that used to impact us back to new life. And so, yes, we're talking about things Jesus never said because the stuff he did say is so powerful. It's so important. It's so crucial to the life of each and every one of us. We're going to finish this series up next Sunday with part five, and I'm tugged in two directions. I don't even know exactly which one we're going. We're either going to talk about stuff Jesus never said about eternity or the stuff Jesus never said about the end times. Uh, so be here, and you can take bets on which one it's going to be. You guys, I'm just kidding, but uh, Jesus never said take bets in church. That's one thing he never said. Uh, but you can place your, your guesses, your predictions on which way we'll go. I'm I'm tugged, I'm not sure. But we're going to talk about one of those next week. Uh, But today we're going to talk about things Jesus never said about sin and guilt. Things Jesus never said. In fact, the title of today's message is Jesus never said you get what you deserve. Praise God for that. He never said that you get what you deserve. In keeping with our tradition, we're going to kick some things off this morning with some things Jesus never said. But rather than specifics to today's message, we've got Thanksgiving Mission OB this Saturday and then Thanksgiving coming up the next week. So I thought it'd be fun to do some things that Jesus never said about Thanksgiving. So Jesus never said, come follow me and no one will fight in the car on the way to Mission OB. He never said that. Uh, Hopefully that'll happen for you. Some of you guys already experienced that on your way in today, and you're living in guilt. This morning, uh, as you told your kids, we're going to go worship Jesus. Uh, But he never said that. Jesus never said, as often as you do this, do this in remembrance of Aunt May's green bean casserole. He never said that. Now, you can celebrate Thanksgiving, but he didn't say that. Uh, Jesus never said, but you will receive power when arguing politics at Thanksgiving dinner. He never said that. Some of you seem to think that's where you get your power from, or at least some in my family think that, but that is not what Jesus said, right? So uh, Thanksgiving is coming. Get your mind right and get prepared for that. But I wonder this morning, how many people in this room, how many of you worshiping with us this morning online are battling guilt today? Christians dealing with shame Dealing with guilt, dealing with condemnation this morning. I saw some interesting statistics on guilt. One of the highest levels of guilt that Americans experience, timely for what we're talking about with Thanksgiving, is actually food guilt. Many Americans experience food guilt. In fact, uh, statistics say that we experience guilt over about 29% of what we eat. Uh, Some of us are above average when it comes to that, right? We're overachievers, but we experience guilt for about 29% of what we eat. Men, on average, experience guilt for about 20 minutes, 
related to what they ate. Women experience guilt for much longer than that. Uh, Statistics tell us we are equal but not the same, right? We are wired differently. Um, We experience all kinds of guilt. We have stuff like mom guilt, right? Moms experience guilt oftentimes if they work because they're not as involved in their kids' lives as they feel like they should be, but oftentimes they also experience guilt if they stay at home because they feel like, hey, now I'm not contributing to the finances of the home. The enemy is so good, he's going to make you feel guilty one way or the other, right? No matter which choice you make for yourself and your family, there's an enemy who's whispering in the ear. Oftentimes moms feel guilty because they see this other Pinterest mom who seems to have it all together, right? And she's got a perfect baked good for every event, and she never forgets to bring something that's just absolutely spectacular, and you're like, man, I forget half the stuff that I'm supposed to do because I've got mom brain, and you have to watch Home Alone every year to at least be like, hey, I didn't forget my kid. So it helps alleviate some of your guilt as you watch Home Alone, right? Well, we've got general guilt that all of us experience that, man, I, I don't want to let somebody down. I feel like I let them down. We have general guilt related to, man, an inability to say no. I'm going to say yes to everything. And if I ever do have the courage to say no, I feel bad that I sent no to somebody because I'm letting them down. We feel that guilt. We have Christian guilt. Anybody experience some Christian guilt? I don't pray enough. I don't serve enough. I lost track of where I was in my Bible reading plan because I haven't been reading recently enough. I told a lie. I cheated on the Daniel fast. I came late to church. We got in a fight on the way here, right? Like we have so many layers of guilt. What do we do when we feel guilty before God? Today we're going to look at what Jesus did not say about sin and guilt. I want to share with you a level of guilt that most of you may not have yet experienced. It's called pastoral guilt. See, understand, guilt is not just out there. It's up here, too. What kind of guilt do I experience? Well, I don't feel like I ever live up to my own standard, let alone God's standard, which is far higher than my standards. I feel like, man, when I'm doing what I should be for the church, oftentimes I feel like I'm not good enough as a husband or a father. Or if I'm doing what I should be doing as a husband or a father, I feel like I'm not always doing what I should be for the church. There's bad decisions that I've made. I've put the wrong people in leadership positions, and it has cost our church at different times. I've made poor financial decisions. Like, I've looked back. And there's a lot of things to feel guilty about. I remember a long time ago when I was early in my season as pastor, there was a young couple who had come up through the 662 that was going through premarital counseling, and we were setting up times for us to meet and, and to get together, and we set up, I mean, the only time that would work for our schedules is we had to meet at 6 a.m. to do premarital counseling. How many of you know that there's not a lot of impact uh, in counseling with a young person at 6 a.m., right? So they were, they were making a stretch to get up and to meet me at 6 a.m., and I'll never forget the day that I just completely forgot I was doing premarital counseling for this couple. And so they got up, and they made it to premarital counseling, and they were ready, and I was knocked out snoring in the bed, right? Uh, And I didn't find out until like 7.30 when I got up from my normal 8.30 show up to work. It's like, oh, 
I was supposed to be up two hours ago uh, and meeting with this couple. You feel guilty when you drop the ball. You feel guilty when you let someone down, especially when you're the one who initiated. You're the one who suggested, let's be crazy and meet at 6 in the morning, and then you don't follow through. All of us deal with layers and levels of guilt. In Luke chapter 23, it describes for us the final hours of Jesus' life on earth. His last few hours before he goes to the cross to pay the price for our sins. You're probably familiar with the story, but let me share with you some things that, that we see that we should not see. In the story, instead of Jesus wearing a golden crown as the king of this world, he is wearing a crown of thorns pressed down into his school, skull as a mockery of his place as king. Instead of being surrounded by angels and servants attending to him, he's surrounded by criminals. By thieves as he hangs on the cross. Instead of sitting on a throne, he hangs on a tree. In Luke chapter 23, we'll pick up the story in verse 32. It says, two other men, both criminals, were also led out with him to be executed. When they came to the place called the skull, this hill called Golgotha, which means the skull, they crucified him there along with the criminals, one on his right, the other on his left. How many people were hanging on crosses at this point? Not a trick question. A couple of very muffled threes. I think three of you answered the question. There were three people. Straightforward, just making sure you're hanging with me here. Three people hanging on crosses. One savior, two criminals. Death by crucifixion, you're probably familiar was reserved in ancient Roman culture for the worst of the worst. The Romans perfected torture. They perfected humiliation. They conquered neighboring peoples and tribes and nations. And when they conquered them, they made sure to make a strong statement of their rule over them. But crucifixion was the ultimate statement they could make. This was not used for petty thieves. This was not used for minor offenses. Crucifixion was used for those who they most wanted to humiliate, torment, and display. It was the highest form of capital punishment that they had to offer, and they had a number of options that they exercised. It was the most horrible form of death, both physically, emotionally, spiritually. It was seen as a curse. What would happen, they had a formula. First came what they called the scourging. You're probably familiar. Jesus took 39 lashes from a whip. What this whip was, was called a cat of nine tails. They would use fragments of glass or nails that would be put in this whip into these lashes, and they would rip into an individual's back until the internal organs were exposed, until there was so much loss of blood that you actually went into shock. You couldn't experience any more pain at this point. It was absolutely excruciating. In fact, crucifixion comes from the same root word as excruciating does. It was the entire point. You would be stripped naked or down to your underwear and hung out in front of the world on public display in massive shame. 
you were nailed to this cross, they would use stakes. History teaches us anywhere from seven inches to nine inches long that would be driven into your bones to hold you in place. And then you probably know you didn't die even from the pain of the, the nails, the pain of the whips. You died from asphyxiation. Uh, there would come a point where you could no longer breathe, and in order to draw a breath, you would have to pull yourself up, actually push into the nails and pull your body up in order to get your chest in position to draw breath. Depending on the individual, this would take anywhere from two to four days. Two to four days hanging there, hoping to die, hoping that this breath would actually be your last. If a individual happened to be an overachiever and made it to day four and was still alive as an act of mercy, the Roman soldiers would take clubs and beat you around your knees until your legs broke. And once the legs broke, you would no longer be physically capable of pulling yourself up to draw a breath and you would suffocate. They didn't let you go longer than four days. Part of the reason for that was crucifixion was not only the most humiliating or the most excruciating form of capital punishment, it was also the most expensive. They positioned four Roman soldiers at the cross to guard those on the cross so no one tried to take them off the cross, uh, and that wasn't cheap. Manpower cost money, and so they wouldn't let it go past four days because at that point they were losing too much. It was no longer worth it to continue the humiliation. We don't know the crimes that were committed by the two individuals on the cross next to Jesus. We do know this, they were severe. These weren't petty thieves. They didn't take an apple off of someone's tree. These weren't pickpockets. These were people that Roman government felt were the worst of the worst. As people gathered to mock them, and especially to mock Jesus, they cursed at him, they spit on him, and Jesus prayed. You know what Jesus prayed? Well, let's look at what Jesus didn't pray, which he could have. Jesus didn't pray, Father, send 1,000 of your greatest angels to wipe them out right now. Jesus didn't pray, strike them all blind, for what they're doing to me. Jesus didn't say send the fleas of 10,000 camels to infest their homes and their families. Jesus didn't say a lot of things that you and I may have said in that moment. Can you imagine the, the, the heart of revenge that Jesus, who was fully God but also fully man, the temptation towards anger, and in his case, righteous anger. What was being done to him was unfair. It was unjust, and he had the power to shut them down at any moment. The self-control of my Savior to deny his own flesh, his own natural human desires, because he knew how desperately we needed what he was doing. It's mind-blowing. The restraint that Jesus displayed. No, Jesus didn't pray any of those things. Jesus prayed very famously, Father, forgive them. They don't even know what they're doing. 
Verse 39 in the text says this. It says, one of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Jesus, at the lowest place of his life, isn't just mocked by the Roman soldiers, isn't just mocked by the religious leaders and Pharisees who set him up to be crucified. And trust me, he was mocked by all those individuals. He's even mocked by someone rightfully receiving the death penalty. He begins hurling insults on them. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. One thief, one criminal on the cross next to Jesus is still arrogant, still prideful, still denying his own need for a savior. Can you imagine? You're dying six feet from the only one who can save you and you don't even realize it at that moment. What a tragedy. What what an awful story. But verse 40 says this, it says, but, we've talked a lot about big buts in the Bible, but there was another, the other criminal, the other thief, the other one rightfully receiving the penalty of death rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said, since you are under the same sentence, we are punished justly. We are getting what our deeds deserve. According to the account of one hanging on the cross, there was no case of mistaken identity. There was not someone who was framed, someone who was unjustly hanging on the cross. He accounts himself, we are getting what we deserve. We earned our place up here. He says, we are punished justly for we are getting what our deeds deserve, but this man has done nothing wrong. How did he know that Jesus had done nothing wrong? How did he have that confession? I believe it's a revelation of the Holy Spirit to this man. The same way that any of us awaken to who Jesus is and recognize him truly as Savior. God had to speak to him. God had to open his eyes and reveal it to this individual. And he had to respond to what God was revealing to him. Then he said, Jesus, remember me. When you come into your kingdom, what an ask He just confessed, I'm rightfully up here. I deserve to die. And yet he had the courage, the humility to say, Jesus, don't forget me. I wonder who today experiences that same sensation. Jesus, don't forget me. Jesus, remember me. Jesus, I've blown it. Jesus, I don't deserve your grace, and I don't deserve your forgiveness. But could you find it in that incredible heart of yours to remember me? I hope you have that heart. I hope you have that humility. I hope you recognize that this morning. Help me finish out these common phrases that we throw around. What goes around, what goes around comes around, right? That your past will come back to haunt you. That you make your bed, you're going to have to lie in it. Everyone recognizes those phrases. Why? Because our culture. That's our human expectation that you get what you deserve. And don't 
get me wrong, the Bible does teach that we reap what we sow and that our actions are going to lead to consequences, but we also get what Jesus sowed. That's the thing we cannot miss. You don't just get what you sow. You also, if you receive him, if you believe in him, if you confess him, you will get what he sowed, and what he sowed is always going to trump what you sow. What an incredible reality. What an amazing, amazing truth. All those statements are really just different ways to say that you get what you deserve. And if I'm real honest, there's a part of me that wants that. There's a part of me that likes that. I remember when I was in Bible college, I was driving home from northeast Georgia back to North Carolina, which is about a two and a half hour drive, and I was on these back roads back actually around where the campus of Clemson University is. As I'm driving through Seneca, South Carolina on this four-lane divided highway, and I'm doing far above the speed limit, I remember this car that blew by me. Like, I'm doing like 85 and a 70, which is ungodly, uh, and this guy made me look like I was standing still. And my first impulse was, I'm about to race this dude, right? Like, you, who do you think you are to think you can pass me on the highway? Like, I am going to be the fastest car on the highway. Uh, and so I started to race him, and by the absolute grace of God, as a 20, 19-year-old, whatever I was, idiot, I, I, I slowed down, and I decided, you know what, he's going too fast, it's not worth it. And about three minutes later, I passed him on the side of the road with a police car right behind him. And I celebrated God for justice. (laughs) Hallelujah. He got what he deserved. I knew it. I made the right choice. Thank you, Jesus. The reality is I deserved the same thing that he got. Maybe not as big of a ticket. Maybe not the trip to prison that he may have gotten for as fast as he was going. But I deserved to be pulled over. Right? See, I like you get what you deserve, except when it happens to me. Except when I'm the one who sees blue lights in my rearview mirror. Then I celebrate a God of grace, hallelujah, who does not give me what I deserve, right? You understand what I'm saying, right? You can relate to this. There's something in us that desires justice for everybody else. Praise God. He has a different heart than we do. Praise God. He has not succumbed to human nature. He sees something different. Verse 41, it says, We are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Imagine the options Jesus had at this moment an excruciating pain, bearing the weight of the sins of the world as as he's gone through something completely undeserved to him, and he knows everything this dude has done. He doesn't just know the public deeds that he's being crucified for. He knows all of the shame, all of the perversion, all of the depravity in this individual who's now throwing himself at another person being crucified for mercy. Imagine the options Jesus had to respond in this moment. He could have said, man, you haven't done anything to earn your standing with me. He, he could have said, you are going to have to go out of here and live a sinless life. 
But he couldn't say that because this man was about to die for his sins. He, he could have said, I'm going to need you to turn over a new leaf. But this man had no time to turn over a new leaf. He could have said, I never liked you. Off to hell with you, buddy. You get what you deserve. You made your bed. You need to lie in it. You need to be sure your past will come back to haunt you. But my Savior didn't say that. He doesn't say that to you or to me today for our sin, for our shame, for our guilt. Look at what my Savior said. In verse 33, it says, Jesus answered him, truly I tell you, today, today you will be with me in paradise. Instantaneous forgiveness. We serve a God of 1 John 1, 9 that says if you confess your sins, he's faithful and just to forgive you your sins and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. What I didn't understand as a young person who did the spiritual roller coaster thing is I thought because of all the other times I'd promised him I was going to get right, that this time when I promised I was going to have to prove it. Man, I was going to have to earn his grace. I was going to have to go three months and read my Bible every day. I was going to have to go two months and not fall back into this sin. I was going to have to demonstrate that I was serious this time. But the reality is when you confess your sins, he's faithful and just right now, today, to forgive you your sins and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. We don't deserve it. It's scandalous. But he extends it anyway. Jesus says to the thief on the cross, this individual who rightly deserved the punishment he's getting, who can't come off that cross and make any kind of amends, who can't come down and fix the problems he's caused, who can't come down and even repent to the people that he's hurt. He has no opportunity to earn anything. Jesus says to him today, today you'll be with me in paradise. Where's the justice? It's not fair. I know people who are good people who don't know Jesus. How can they be separated from him? And yet this guy is extended grace. It's scandalous. The reality is none of us knows a good person. All of us deserve the punishment that that thief received on the cross Truth is, I don't even deserve to be preaching to you this morning. I can't tell you all the times where I've disqualified myself from this position all throughout the process. When I was a teenager in eighth grade and first really got serious about my faith and got filled with the Holy Spirit and started evangelizing, telling my friends about Jesus. I went through this amazing season. God used me to lead eight of my friends to Christ in like a one-month period. It was incredible. Within about four months, I had completely destroyed my testimony. And every one of those friends who came to Jesus had walked away from the faith. I deserve to get to be your pastor. I went to Bible college, and I was filled with spiritual pride. I thought I knew more than my professors did, more than my school did, and I spent years in Bible college arguing and contentious rather than in humility and receiving the incredible opportunity I had to grow. Did an internship in Oklahoma, and as I'm out there at this amazing place and learning and soaking, within two months we had this staff prayer event, and 
It was a weekly Tuesday morning staff prayer, and we went into staff prayer, and another intern and I kind of finished up before some other people, and we started having a conversation, and we started laughing and making a scene while others are praying. And the pastor of that church called us out, made us come down front, and made it very, very clear how serious they valued prayer at that church. I was this close to being sent home from Oklahoma for disrespecting prayer as an intern. These are just opportunities I had to disqualify from ministry before I even got into it. My second semester of my sophomore year in Bible college, my, I, I went to Bible college on academic scholarship. I had been voted most likely to succeed. I was a national merit scholar. God had blessed me with a lot of potential, with a lot of capability. And my second semester of my sophomore year, I ended up earning a 1.6 GPA, and it was only a 1.6 because I was able to drop about three classes that I also would have failed. My little brother attempted suicide that semester. And here I was in college learning to position myself to help other people through their stuff and I couldn't handle my own and this is just the stuff that happened before I started if I had time I could tell you a million other ways I've disqualified myself from ministry since I've been in ministry and yet God in his grace allows me to stand on this stage and teach to you not because I deserve to be here not because I have earned it, but only because I have a God of grace. I love what Pastor Rick Bazette says. He says, to this day, I think God picked the wrong guy. But I know in my heart he picked me. And I know that's a statement about ministry and a statement about pastoring, and it's a statement I've grabbed a hold of. But the reality is it's a statement we should all make about our faith. I feel to this day like God picked the wrong person. I'm not worthy of being part of the family of God. But I know he picked me. I know he chose me. I know he brought me into his family. I know I'm his child. What an amazing truth to be able to stand on. He's made me his. Amen. A few weeks ago, we saw this statement in our Big Butts of the Bible series in Ephesians chapter 2. It says, like the rest, verse 3, we were by nature deserving of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who's rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. You need to know Jesus didn't just come to make bad people good. That is a lowering of the gospel. Jesus came to make dead people live. He came so you could have life, and not just any life, an abundant life, a full life, a fulfilling life, a meaningful life. Because you were dead and so was I. Verse 8, for it is by grace you've been saved through faith, and this not from yourselves. It's the gift of God, not by works, so that none of us can boast. None of us can boast. Three people on the cross Three, three is, in Scripture, the, the number of perfection. It's the number that represents wholeness. That something is done, we have a triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We are created in three parts, spirit, soul, and body. We can go on and on and on in Scripture and recognize the number three. Jesus is dead and in the grave for three days. Jonah is in the belly of the whale for three days. Over and over again, we see three. Paul is stranded on the island of Malta for three months. Three times, Paul prays to God to remove the thorn in his flesh, and God says no. It's this statement of completion. 
And Jesus, as he hangs on the cross, he's about to be buried for three days. He's about to be gone for three days, but he's coming back. Know this, none of us are here because we're good. That's why we have a sign hanging in our lobby that says you're free to struggle here because the reality is we all do. None of us has it together. None of us has it perfect. Struggle is simply a statement that I'm not going to be content in my sin. I'm not going to say, hey, that's just the way that I am or, or that's the way that I grew up or, or that's just the way our family is. It says, look, I'm going to fight with this thing. I'm going to battle with this thing with God's grace and God's freedom. I'm going to believe for something better. I'm headed somewhere even if I'm struggling right now. Because it's by grace that any of us receive this and get invited in. I love the way it's put in Psalm 103. It says, he, he being God, does not punish us for all our sins. Aren't you glad you're not punished for all your sins? He does not deal harshly with us as we deserve. For his unfailing love towards those who fear him is as great as the height of the heavens above the earth. He's removed our sins as far as the east is from the west. Here's what you need to see, church. That's Old Testament. Sometimes we get this idea of this Old Testament God who was, who was hateful and was angry and was full of wrath. God didn't change in the New Testament. He just upgraded his offer. He just increased his covenant with us. He was his plan all along to send Jesus for grace. There was no change in God's heart. He just now had paid the price to do everything he ever wanted for us. His heart was always the same. It was always to bring restoration and redemption. Jesus did not come. To make bad people good, he came to make dead people live. We throw around a couple of words very commonly in Christianese, and if we're not careful, we may throw them around and not really know what they mean. There's a lot of words like that, but I'm going to talk about two this morning. Those words are mercy and grace. Mercy and grace, if you've been a Christian for any length of time, hopefully you've been taught this, and this is just review, but perhaps for some of us this will be brand new. What, what do those words mean? Well, mercy means this. Mercy means we don't get the bad that we deserve. Mercy is God extending to us forgiveness, extending to us a, a cancellation of our debt. What I deserve is death. What I deserve is punishment. What I deserve is eternal separation from him. But in his mercy, that's not what I get. And then there's grace. So what's the difference between mercy and grace? A lot of times we may use those words interchangeably. Grace is something different. It's similar, but it's different. Grace is when we do get the good that we don't deserve. Mercy is not paying for what you should have to pay for. Grace is getting what you shouldn't get. Last night, I got to celebrate my 13th anniversary, which is actually today, with my amazing wife, Melody. Will you give it up for her? Here's how incredible my wife is. Today's our 13th anniversary, our golden anniversary. We got married on Friday the 13th, 2009. Why did you get married on Friday, Pastor Troy? Because it was cheaper than Saturday. True story. It's how romantic I am. Hallelujah, okay? Uh, we got married on a Friday on November the 13th, 2009. Last night, we went out and celebrated. My, my, my amazing wife on our anniversary is serving running video this morning. 
She's just faithful like that. It's just how she is. She's not about herself. She's not about attention. I know that this is not her favorite moment of our service, but I love you, baby, and I'm grateful for you, and thank you for sticking by my side for 13 years. Last night we went out to dinner, went to Seasons 52, uh, and for the first time, and they brought out these like seven different desserts uh, in these little shot glasses, and we had all these options, and as we were trying to figure out what we wanted, the server goes, oh, by the way, you guys each get to have one for free because it's your anniversary. So did we settle for one each? Of course not. Uh, but that, what is that? That's Grace. They gave us a $3 shot glass of dessert. Man, hallelujah, we celebrated. Grace is getting what you don't deserve. Jesus doesn't just cancel your debt. He doesn't just forgive you, which is more than enough. He doesn't stop at mercy. He says, you're going to get me. You're going to get my presence. I'm going to send my spirit to live in you. I know you've heard me talk about this before, but it just overwhelms me over the last few years. As incredible as forgiveness is, my God didn't stop at forgiveness. He actually wants to be with me. He wants to be with you. In his goodness, he could have canceled our debt and it would be more than enough. I'd be eternally indebted to him doesn't stop there. He gives me what I don't deserve on top of not giving me what I do deserve. A little thought experiment for me as we get ready to close. Imagine this. Imagine that thief on the cross as Jesus tells him, today you'll be with me in paradise. Imagine that the Roman soldiers heard that and they were so angry with Jesus and so mad at Jesus and so desirous to humiliate Jesus, they decide, well, we're going to prove you wrong. And so they let the man off the cross. They, they, they let this man down. You're going to be with me in paradise? They said, no, we're, we're going to make a statement. So this guy comes off the cross. What do you think happens the rest of his life? He's literally just received life back. Because something Jesus said. He's been given this opportunity. He's going to have some scars, yeah. There's some scars in his body. There's going to be a recovery process for him to get back to where he was. How many know when you come to Jesus, there's a recovery process? There's, not, there, there's instantaneous salvation, but there's also some stuff we got to renew. There's some stuff we got to work out. There's some old life that's got to get out of us. So there would be some scars, there would be some process for this individual, but I believe if he would have come off the cross at that moment, he would have lived however long the rest of his life was for the glory of Jesus. I met the Savior, and because of what he said, I'm alive, I should have been dead, I deserved death, but I get to live for him. And some of you think I get a little emotional up here and a little crazy and I'm a little over the top. You know why I'm over the top? Because I should be dead, but I'm alive because Jesus spoke words into my life because he loved me because he extended mercy to me and gave grace to me. And I don't really care if you think I'm a little too fired up about this because he's worthy of being fired up about. What if you got a revelation that Jesus took you off the cross? What if you really got a revelation that you were dead, but now you're alive? How would it impact your conversations? How would it impact the way you live? How would it translate to your workplace, to your family, to all the aspects that make up this life? 
I need you to know this morning that you don't get what you deserve. Jesus never said you get what you deserve. In fact, you get what Jesus deserves. What a blessing. What a Savior. Would you pray with me, church?